Welcome to the Church in the Graveyard podcast and our series on stewardship. In this series of three sermons, we are looking at what it means to care for and use well the blessings God has entrusted to us. Christians are called to be, as Peter puts it, good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We hope this series will help you understand, take to heart and put into practice this important calling. For more information and audio content, please visit us at www.neac.com.au. Let me take you back to your childhood. For some, that may mean going back many years, others fewer. Think of an outdoor location that was special to you as a child, a place in the natural world that was close to your heart, a place with cherished memories, perhaps where you had some significant experiences. For me, I think of a holiday cottage owned by my extended family in the upper Allen River in the Barrington Tops National Park, and in particular, a spectacular bathing hole nearby called Ladies' Well, where as kids we spent many hours swimming, jumping off rocks, watching waterfalls, skimming uh, the smooth river, river stones across the surface. Have you got a place in mind? Share that with your neighbour. Just spend a minute uh, telling them about that place and why it's special to you and listen to them. Okay, if everyone's had a chance, uh, if, you, if you missed out, you can make sure you tell your neighbour at the end about your special place. Because most of us do have these special places. Uh, and today we're going to be reflecting on our relationship with the rest of creation. And it's only appropriate that our journey begins here with delight and gratitude for these lead us into paying attention to the various goods we encounter in the world around us, as well as pointing us to the one who made them and made us receptive to noticing and delighting in them. So it's right that we start here as we engage on this topic. And, and I also wanted to tap into some childhood memories because I think children often get this stuff better than grown-ups. Because sometimes we get so busy that we lose our ability just to watch and to wonder. Sometimes we can miss what's right under our nose. So as, as we uh, think about these things tonight, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for these precious memories, for these places close to our heart. Help us to remain deeply thankful as we consider our relationship to the rest of your good creation. Even as tonight we turn our attention to things that may also make us sad or angry or confused. Give us the courage to be honest with ourselves and with one another so that your truth may set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Two young fish were swimming along and they came across an older fish swimming the other way. Isn't the water lovely today? The older one remarked. The youngsters nodded politely and kept on swimming. When the old timer was well out of earshot, one fish turned to the other and said, What's water? Some things are so close to us we can't see them, so normal that most of the time they're effectively invisible. Often it's only when the normal goes wrong that it suddenly comes into focus. This was certainly true for me a few years ago when I received some very serious, uh, even life-threatening health news. Suddenly the good health that I'd taken for granted jumped into focus. By being threatened, what had always been true suddenly became visible to me. I'd been swimming in the water of good health without really noticing how much of a blessing it can be. But that, 
that uh, diagnosis had suddenly opened my eyes. And one of these realities that's as necessary and ubiquitous to us as water is to fish, yet which is so obvious we rarely consider it, is our relationship of utter dependence upon the proper functioning of the rest of creation. Every breath we take, every mouthful of food, every sip of water relies on a whole complex web of relations. The fusion of hydrogen atoms in the heart of the sun, which, which beams out energy that reaches our planet in just the right intensity to drive photosynthesis and to move the water around, uh, and which has the, the dangerous frequencies filtered out by the ozone layer. And, the, and this energy that hits the surface of the planet, and some of it bounces back, but on its way back out as long-wave radiation, some of it is trapped by certain gases that keep our planet warmer than it would otherwise be. Without, without them, our planet would be a frozen ball. Uh, but instead, most of it contains liquid water. And that water, which is everywhere and necessary for plants to produce the oxygen we breathe and the carbohydrates we eat, that water that's prevented from stagnating by the tug of the moon and the, the, the spin of the earth and the warmth of the sun, that water that's carried on winds so that life-giving rain falls even far from the ocean, water that flows and carves rocks, gradually smoothing the pebbles that I skimmed across Lady's Well as a child, and the water which carries nutrients out into the ocean where they're needed by the microscopic phytoplankton that not only supply half the world's atmospheric oxygen, but which also form the basis of the marine food chain. And on it goes. In any direction you care to look, you can, you can find whole complex webs uh, of life, uh, whole complex webs of interactions between oceans and atmosphere and soil uh, and living things. Uh, and this is one of the great things about studying science. Uh, there may be some here who have studied or uh, are studying science and uh, you know, just understanding, getting a bit more of a glimpse of how these things relate to each other, uh, I think is really a good thing. So when we come to the concept that's at the heart of this series that we're in on stewardship, this concept of stewardship, we must come to it mindful that it is actually a secondary concept if we're thinking about our relationship to creation. Stewardship only makes sense when it's placed within a broader framework, a wider vision of humanity's relationship to the rest of creation, one that emphasises that we are members of a whole community of creation and our primary relationship to other creatures is as fellow creatures together that we are all recipients of all that we are and need and can be from the hand of a generous creator. So whatever else we may go on to say about the place of humanity within creation, this doesn't override this fundamental interdependence and solidarity that we share with our co-creatures. So we don't approach the rest of creation as though we exist prior to it or outside it or above it. No. If we read the creation accounts at the, the start of Genesis, we see that God proclaimed creation good, 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 six times, even before humanity enters the scene. And there's no hint in those accounts that the rest of creation was made simply for us to use. Indeed, such a view is idolatrous. Numerous places in Scripture make it clear that if creation does have a purpose beyond itself, it exists for God rather than for us. Now, we may be given certain bits of it to be able to use, but creation as a whole exists for itself and for God rather than for us. And other creatures have their own relationship to God that's prior to and more important than their subsequent relationship to humanity. This is clear in numerous places at the end of Job, in Psalm 104, 
uh, and elsewhere. This, this is celebrated that the creatures look to God for food and that God provides for them and that they relate to him and he knows them. Uh, and these are wild animals outside the bounds of human influence or, or interest. And so we share with all creatures this fundamental origin in God and orientation to God. And no account of human stewardship will make sense unless we really grasp this. And that's why I picked Psalm 148 as our Old Testament text tonight, because it takes this reality and places it in the context of worship. As we listen to the psalmist's praise of the Creator, notice how most of the psalm takes the form of invitations to all the other creatures to join in a universal chorus of praise. The picture is of a massive and diverse choir, or perhaps an orchestra, all singing and making music in harmony, all, all praising the Creator, but all having a different part to play in it. Uh, all, all the different creatures, the, the angels, who are after all creatures, the sun, moon and stars, the waters, the weather, the trees, the animals. The, the, the psalmist goes through listing all these and finally we get to the humans. And it's almost as though he's, he's in, reminding the humans that it, we are joining into a song that already exists. <clears throat> and this picture, I think, is an excellent antidote to two mistaken approaches to the rest of creation. On the one hand, you get uh, a position adopted by some extreme environmentalists uh, is to treat nature as itself divine, sometimes called pantheism. And the scriptures affirm that, indeed, through the created order, we can catch glimpses of God's glory. But we're most in tune with the universe when we're not worshipping it, but joining with it in worshipping the creator. But there's a second mistake, and I think this one is actually far, far more common in our society uh, and, and in our churches. And that lies not in overstating the importance of creation, but in understating it, taking it for granted, treating it as though it's mere raw materials to be mastered by our technology, used for our projects, without any consideration of a broader context. In this mistaken view, we, we look and all we see are just resources for our economies, we fail to see that the world is charged with the grandeur of God, that these other creatures are our co-worshippers. But once we really get the reality that uh, we belong with, not, not outside of or over against the rest of creation, then we can no longer worship creation, nor treat it like dirt. In fact, we shouldn't even treat dirt like dirt, because from dirt we came, and to dirt we will return. We belong with dirt. We're made out of dirt. We belong with the life of the planet. In fact, if, if you uh, turn to um, Genesis 2, we, we find there a pun. We have the first man, Adam, the Hebrew word for man, is made from the ground, Adamah. Adam from Adamah. Uh, it, it's a pun in Hebrew. And this is from, from the dirt he is made. That's, that's where he gets his name from. And the pun works, sort of at least, in English too. Human comes from the, the humus, the soil. The, the human from the humus. Uh, and uh, I really like it in English because there's a third word that shares the same uh, root. That beautiful word, humility. Humility means being close to the dirt. Being, being humble is to be close to the dirt, not thinking of ourselves as demigods or somehow outside of creation, but seeing ourselves 
as dependent upon and bound up together with the rest of creation. And that's central to what it means to be properly humble, what it means to be properly human. And so when we come to consider the uniquely human task and responsibility, uh, and and, uh, this, this task and responsibility has to be understood within a more basic solidarity as a member of the community of creation. So what then of stewardship? this particularly human task uh, that, that uh, we are given. Uh, within this context, if we keep that broader context in mind, it is a very useful metaphor that highlights part of our relationship, not just to creation, but also to the creator. Because a steward is one who is entrusted with the care of something on behalf of the true owner. And so we are entrusted with part of creation on behalf of the true owner. Uh, the true owner being God, as Psalm 24 affirms, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. And we've been delegated partial responsibility for one little patch. And that places us firmly in a position of accountability to God, who's the true owner. How we treat his creation reflects what we think of him. Having received that responsibility from him, we're not able to just do with it as we please. We've got to be sensitive to his priorities and concerns. Now, my wife and I currently live with her parents. We've only been back for a few weeks from Edinburgh, and we're still uh, you know, working out where we're going to live, and so we're, we're staying with her parents for a while. We live in their house by their generosity. To us, they have entrusted a self-contained basement flat that they are fortunate to have. And within that space, we have a certain limited responsibility and authority to make changes to improve the space and make it more of a home for ourselves. What we don't have the right to do is to trash the place or to take over the rest of the house or to um, make changes that will damage the basic structure of the dwelling. If we breach those limits, we are accountable to the true owners of the flat, her parents. And if we breach those limits, we are showing what we really think of the true owners. We are dishonouring them. So in short, we are stewards of that flat. And in a similar way, humanity has been entrusted by God with a dwelling place. And within this generous provision, we're able to make certain changes that make it a home for ourselves. However, unlike my in-law's house, we're not the only residents. Instead, we are placed here on earth in companionship with a host of other living beings with whom we share a planetary house and whose interests we can't ignore or entirely subordinate to our projects. The owner cares not only for us humans, but also for them. And we read in Genesis that he blessed us and invited us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but he also blessed the other creatures and invited them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so our fruitfulness can't come at the expense of theirs. If, if our filling of the planet is squeezing them out, then we're doing it wrong. And make no mistake... We are failing badly at our task. On almost any metric you care to name, we are trashing the joint. We're silencing the voices of our fellow worshippers. We're undoing the complex web of interdependence. We're bringing changes to the earth system on a scale and at a rate that far exceeds anything in human history. And this has consequences for us. This has consequences for the other creatures. This has consequences for what it reveals about how we think of God, the true owner. 
Let's review for a moment some of the uh, uh, big picture of human, current human uh, misuse of the rest of creation. Some of this may be familiar to you, some of it may not. Human presence and activities now affect over 80% of the world's ice-free land surface and all of the oceans and atmosphere. We are a huge planetary influence. Some people like to, to say humans are too puny, too small to really make a difference. It's arrogant to think that uh, mere humans could be changing a whole planet. Uh, well, I think it's arrogant to think you know what is going on without actually looking. When we actually look, we find that we have become a force of nature. We currently move more soil each year than all the natural forces of wind and water together. We've destroyed or degraded 80% of ancient forests, half of that in the last 30 years. Our actions have destroyed a fifth of coral reefs already, degraded another fifth, and the remaining three-fifths are unlikely to survive the century on our current trajectory. Biodiversity has seen more rapid changes in the last six decades than at any time since the end of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. Species are currently becoming extinct at something like 100 to 1,000 times the background rate. Many species each day, uh, many of them unknown, unseen, but known to God. And that rate of extinction is accelerating. Without a major change of course, the 21st century could well see over half of all species on the path to extinction. Biologists speak of us instigating the sixth great extinction event in the history of the planet on a, on a comparable scale to uh, an asteroid impact in terms of its, uh, our effect on biodiversity. Even the species hanging on are suffering huge declines in abundance and diversity. Uh, just to give you a couple of the, the charismatic megafauna that people like to think about, in the 1950s there were roughly 450,000 lions worldwide. 60 years later now, there are about 20,000. Tigers, 1950, 50,000. Today, about 3,000. 22% of the world's plant species are already considered threatened. Another 33% have no, uh, we're just not sure, unknown status. We're losing soil rapidly. Uh, an area the size of Greece or Nepal is lost to soil erosion and desertification every year. Again, since 1950, an area of soil approximately two and a half size the t size of Australia has been degraded. Changes to marine ecosystems have been no less dramatic. I was listening to a lecture just this week, a uh, marine biologist from uh, York University in the UK, uh, who's, who's written a book uh, uh, with a big picture of the, the long history of the oceans and looking at human impact on the oceans. And he concludes that the last 30 years of human activity have had a larger effect on the oceans than the entire history of humanity before that put together and probably for many thousands, tens of thousands of years before. <clears throat> uh, according to marine biologists, about four-fifths of global fisheries are fully exploited, overexploited, or have been depleted. The marine apex predator numbers, so that's the, the large fish at the top of the food chain, and sharks, uh, and things like tuna, their numbers are likely around a tenth of what they were a century ago, mainly due to overfishing. Since 1950, phytoplankton, those tiny little marine creatures, that uh, provide every second breath that we breathe uh, and then the basis of the marine food chain. Uh, some recent studies, uh, it's hard to get the number exact, but they suggest that their numbers may have declined by about 40% over the, 
over the last six decades. Even the the alien and largely unvisited deep sea floor isn't immune. Even there, our effects are felt. Uh, Fishing uh, ships that bottom trawl. Um, These are commercial fishing fleets that drag heavy metal beams over the sea floor, just scooping up everything uh, and crushing and scattering the slow-growing deep corals and other creatures. Uh, These these, uh, trawlers kick up plumes of underwater dust as they scrape along the bottom, and you can see those plumes from satellites. Each year, an area of seabed twice the size of Australia is bottom-trawled, scooping up fish and marine creatures that are amongst the slowest growing in the world. Inland waterways, similar story. Major rivers have been so altered that nearly 80% of the world's population now live in areas whose rivers are seriously degraded or threatened by a whole range of uh, human effects. Over 60% of major rivers in the world are dammed or diverted, and many of those remaining have plans afoot to do so. We're extracting groundwater at twice the rate we were 50 years ago. Uh, We're um, uh, vastly changing the nitrogen cycle. Our use of fertilisers is shifting the the, the balance of uh, nitrogen in in rivers and uh, coastal areas. And uh, some of you may have seen the the pictures just this week from China of vast areas of sea that are just a a floating carpet of green algae growing on the surface uh, due to agricultural runoff. Uh, An area the size of Belgium. This this happens every year in, in many of the major rivers around the world. Uh, you get these great big zones of uh, algal blooms that suck up all the oxygen and leave a dead space underneath where fish can't live. But perhaps the most far-reaching human alterations have actually been to the atmosphere. We've been burning, digging up and burning fossil fuels for uh, uh, about 200 years, but uh, really taken off in the last few decades. And during the course of the 20th century, we used approximately 10 times the total energy of the 19 centuries before it combined. It's hard to get your head around just how rapid this uh, increase in energy use has occurred. And most of that energy has come from burning fossil fuels. And as we burn them, we're releasing gases that alter the climate. Today, we continue to dump more than 1,000 tonnes of heat-trapping emissions into the atmosphere every second. Since the Industrial Revolution, we've increased the main... uh, heat-trapping gas, carbon dioxide, by more than 40%. And that's also had a a flow-on effect, that as you increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, some of it gets absorbed by the oceans, and that changes their pH, their their acidity, makes them slightly more acidic. And so the acidity of the oceans has risen by 30% in the last few decades. We are changing the chemistry of the oceans, the chemistry of the atmosphere, in some fundamental ways, and at a pace faster than anything seen in all of human history. And global temperatures, as a consequence, are rising faster than any time in human history. This extra heat that the, 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 our waste carbon dioxide is adding is the equivalent of four Hiroshima bombs. That, that the amount of energy in four Hiroshima bombs is being added to the planetary system as a whole every second over the last few decades. And that extra heat's already having all kinds of effects. It's making heat waves more frequent and intense. Uh, It's causing nine out of ten glaciers globally to be retreating. It's breaking up ice shelves in Antarctica that have been stable for millennia. It's causing unprecedented bleaching damage to coral reefs. It's beginning to melt the enormous ice sheets of Greenland and Antarctica. It's raising sea levels at a faster pace than any time since human civilization began. 
It's reducing snow cover. It's thawing permafrost that's been frozen for tens of thousands of years. Shifting the timing of seasonal events. It's moving ecosystems towards the poles and to higher elevations. It's increasing atmospheric humidity and the intensity of extreme rainfall and snowfall. These are all just observed changes. These are what the scientists are finding. We are changing the world with our actions. And perhaps most dramatically, the rapid thinning and shrinking of sea ice in the Arctic. Every year, the Arctic Ocean is covered by ice, as you probably know, at the North Pole. And in summer, it shrinks, and in winter, it expands. But what's been happening is each summer, it's been shrinking further and further and further, so that the total volume of floating Arctic sea ice at the end of the summer melt season is down 80% from what it was just 30 years ago. Most experts believe it won't be long before we see an Arctic Ocean with virtually no ice in it at the end of summer. We've taken one of the largest geographical features of the planet, visible from the moon, and we've broken it. And these changes have consequences. They have consequences, yes, for the polar bears and for all the other species, our co-worshippers. They have consequences for humans, too, and particularly for the world's poor. Because uh, higher temperatures suppress crop yields. There's just a a fairly straightforward uh, relationship that holds for most of our major crops, that uh, a certain number of days above a certain temperature will reduce the crop by a certain percentage. It can be measured, and it's it's predictable. Uh, And we prayed before about uh, the situation in in Egypt, which is a a complex and messy uh, business with a whole range of historical factors and contemporary issues. But one of the the key triggers for that situation, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, uh, but the the, the Arab Spring a few years ago, Tunisia and Libya and Egypt and Syria and a number of the other places that that have seen significant unrest in the last few years. These are some of the major grain-importing countries in the Middle East. The last few years have seen grain prices more than double from what they were just a few years ago. There's been a a very rapid spike in food prices. And uh, we don't notice it so much here because in Australia we spend maybe 10 to 15% of our income on food. So things might get a little bit more expensive if food prices go up. Uh, in many of these places, people are spending 50%, 60% or more of their income on food. So seeing prices double, that has a, a real effect. Uh, and, and all these places that saw um, unrest, uh, in each case, the initial protests were about the price of bread. These, this was the trigger for uh, the, the unrest. There are, there are all sorts of underlying reasons uh, you know, repressive regimes and, and, uh, and you know, a whole range of other factors, but it was the price of food that triggered them. And why were food prices so high? Again, it's a complex picture, but a, a major part of that puzzle, why they rose at that point in time, were, was the unprecedented heat wave in Russia that slashed Russia from being one of the major grain exporters into being a grain importer that year, uh, and, and at the same time, huge floods in Pakistan, which also grows lots of grains, Uh, There were floods in Queensland and in Argentina, also big grain-growing regions. Uh, And and those events were all the kind of events that are made more likely in a warming world. So it's a very complex causal chain there, but the the changing patterns in the world have effects, real-world effects in, in geopolitics. 
uh, and sometimes unpredictable ones. Uh, and we're already having these effects on the planet. But more alarmingly than what is already happening is what the scientists tell us we're headed towards. On our current emissions trajectory, if we keep increasing our carbon pollution at our current rate, then within the lifetime of my little children, the scale and pace of changes will be such that, that most experts who look into this expect we will exceed the ability of most natural and human systems to adapt. Heat waves and droughts will slash global agricultural output. The majority of the world's species will be well on their way to extinction. The great ice sheets will be committed to long-term melting, which over the following centuries will add tens of metres of sea level rise. The oceans will become too acidic and too warm to support anything like their current diversity. We'll find ourselves struggling merely to survive on a far harsher and less hospitable planet. And what will that say about what we think of the Creator? What will that say about our relationship to our co-worshippers? These aren't the conclusions of eco-activists or wind farm developers. These are the considered positions of some of the most respected scientific institutions in the world. These are the conclusions of such noted radical hippies as the World Bank, the International Energy Agency, major insurance companies, the Pentagon. And in fact, they're, they're, they're accepted by uh, the official positions of most of the major Christian denominations in the world. Now, very often in my conversations with Christians about these things, I find that uh, people are willing to grant that we have a responsibility to care for creation, that we are stewards, that we're not here to exploit, we're not meant to trash the place. Yet many Christians, when I, I uh, talk to them about this, don't want to go further than that. They don't want to um, ask how we're actually going in that task. They'll, they'll grant it in principle, but won't look at the world to see if, in fact, uh, we are being good stewards or not. And this, to me, seems a little bit like being willing to listen to the doctor if she tells me to eat a healthy diet and get more exercise, but putting my fingers in my ears when she says, I have a life-threatening cancer requiring immediate and dramatic treatment. It's not a comfortable thought. I said earlier I, I took my health for granted until a sudden serious diagnosis a few years ago, uh, which was a cancer diagnosis. And if I had only been willing to listen to my doctor when the news was easily palatable, then I don't think I would be here today. Because what that required was drastic, urgent reaction. Health isn't the only good thing in life, but when you're in a health crisis, it's, it's worth paying extra attention to it and sometimes doing things that are out of the ordinary in response. And so opening ourselves to hearing bad news, opening ourselves to thinking of our current situation as an ecological crisis, takes some courage. And I think doing that, though, leads to um, uh, all kinds of unwanted and uncomfortable emotions that often crowd in and make us not want to listen, not want to really think about this. We, we, we don't like those emotions, and so we want to push the things causing them to one side. This is just a natural human response. 
We might feel fearful and anxious of what is to come. We might feel overcome with sorrow at what we're already doing. We might feel remorse or guilt. We might be paralyzed by feelings of impotence at how paltry even our best efforts seem. Or we could just be filled with anger at ourselves or at others. I, I find this in my own experience. We, we, we don't want to hear what's happening. We, we want to avoid or minimize those emotions. And so we indulge ourselves with little half-truths, convenient distractions. We set up defense mechanisms that minimize or hide the true scale of the problem. We shift the blame elsewhere. We direct all our attention onto small token efforts that enable us to, to fool ourselves into thinking we're not really part of the problem. As long as, I, <clears throat> as long as I'm recycling religiously, then I'm doing my bit. <clears throat> or sometimes we just shoot the messenger. We deny that a problem exists at all. We label all these scientific studies. Well, you fill in the blanks. You can read the newspapers. And we listen instead to the soothing voices of those who assure us that our project of world domination can continue indefinitely. These are all understandable reactions, but they're sub-Christian reactions. Christians don't need to be afraid of facing the truth about our current ecological situation. Emotions like grief and anger, fear, remorse, these are all entirely appropriate. And actually, as Christians, we're, we are taught to think of ourselves as broken, to think of ourselves as people in need of transforming grace, to think of ourselves who very often contribute to the problem that we see around us. This, this is why we confess our sins on a regular basis. This is why the Lord's Prayer, uh, with, with the same breath that we ask for our daily bread, we ask for forgiveness. So at one level, it ought not to be surprising for us as Christians to discover that uh, we have this deep problem. And so these emotions, rather than suppressing them or seeking to avoid them, as Christians, I think we can face them honestly, trusting in a gracious and loving God as we work through them and live with them. In particular, I would say, don't be afraid of grief and of grieving. I think many of these emotions (coughs) correspond to some of the stages of grief. Uh, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, fear. Uh, these, these, are, um, these are all part of what it means to grieve when things are wrong. And uh, uh, Andrew read before that, that passage from James that asks us to grieve, invites us into grief, um, doing so trusting in a God who forgives and heals and changes. And so any Christian response to our current ecological predicament has to begin in faith and repentance. This is where we always begin, in hearing the good news, in trusting it. Faith, because only entrusting ourselves to a gracious God can give us the strength to face these unpleasant realities. And repentance, because we all find ourselves part of the problem to a greater or a lesser extent. And in Australia, on average, it's to a greater extent because uh, our lifestyles uh, are, generally speaking, some of the the largest footprints in the world from an ecological perspective or a climate perspective. Uh, If if the whole world lived an Australian lifestyle, 
we would need something like five planets to sustain it. Obviously, we don't have five planets. Not everyone can live like an Australian. That means we need to think about our lifestyle. But the good news is that in Jesus, there's forgiveness. There's the possibility of a new way. And there's a possibility of having the courage to be honest with ourselves and with one another about these things. And so what is this new way? Now, there's, there's all kinds of things we could say at this point. These are complex issues. Uh, I'm, I'm very willing to, to keep discussing uh, the details of this uh, after the service uh, or, or on the Facebook group, or, or you can contact me uh, directly. Um, but at one level, amidst all these complexities, all the possible strategies to respond to them, the core of what we need to do is really quite simple. Really quite simple. This is where our New Testament passage comes in. It's a passage that... that Uh, will probably be familiar to many of us, perhaps familiar to the point of invisibility. But let's hear again the radical vision of human life that Jesus points us towards. Jesus is asked, amidst the complexities and challenges of his day, with his nation under occupation, with his claims contested, he's in the middle of a a great uh, contest and controversy with with the leaders of his day that will lead uh, to his death uh, a few days later. Uh, His followers are small in number, they're disorganised, they're scared. Amidst all this, Jesus is asked a disarmingly simple question. Which commandment is the first? Which one's the greatest? Which one is the commandment that orients our life? The one that is the key to understanding all the other ones? What is it that we are to do? What's the heading under which all our actions fall? And his answer is simple. Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love. In response to God's great love, poured out in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, we are called to a life that participates in that love, that reflects it, that shares it. That's the great heading for our life. That's the great banner under which we understand all those questions of what we're meant to do. It's simple. Love. I didn't say it's easy. I said it's simple. And so what does love in an age of ecological crisis look like? How do we love the creator? How do we love our neighbour? Well, it might begin with seeking again that delight in being part of creation towards which our childhood memories pointed us. If you go back to those where we began tonight that delight, because delight leads to gratitude, quite naturally, and gratitude is the path to contentment. Love in an age where our levels of consumption are costing us the earth will mean rejecting the idea that I'm a consumer, I'm not what I buy, and finding my identity in receiving the love of Christ and reflecting it in loving service. Contentment is the great antidote to the restless dissatisfaction that drives consumerism. Perhaps love might mean discovering once more that life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions and that our continual accumulation of stuff is bad for our soul as well as the planet. Now, some here might be students and feel like you don't, you don't have enough money to be accumulating stuff, but before long you will. And already we, we all swim in this water of consumerism. This is, this is the, the air we breathe. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're aware there's a, a multi-billion dollar industry designed day in, day out 
to persuade you to be discontent, to be unsatisfied, to be unhappy. The advertising industry that always says you need more, you need the latest, you need this to fulfill your life. So perhaps love might mean discovering that relationships of trust and mutuality with all their messiness and pain and surprises, discovering that those relationships are more valuable than the latest gadget. Perhaps love might mean reducing our exposure to that advertising. There's a uh, a great loony cartoon, and if you're familiar with his work, you can probably imagine the pictures, but the text goes like this. If all the TVs in the world were one big TV, what a big TV that would be. If all the oceans in the world were one big ocean, what a great big ocean that would be. And if we took that TV and we threw it into that ocean, what a great big splash that would be. Uh, Perhaps we should be sensitive to the ways that uh, the the advertising that is always bombarding us may be shaping our priorities uh, and, and just turning down the volume, turning it off throwing, metaphorically or perhaps literally, our TV into the ocean. Love today might mean joining with our neighbours to seek ways to reduce the impact of our actions. It might mean just understanding that impact, going online, looking at a a footprint calculator that that, uh, will help you see which parts of your life are having the biggest impact. It might mean drawing our energy from renewable resources. might mean questioning our throwaway culture redesigning our economy on something other than an insatiable drive for more. I mean, that's, that's at the heart of what all our politicians are always promising us. Growth, growth, more growth. But you've probably heard the line, the only ones who believe in endless growth are economists and tumour cells. Endless growth in a finite system is a recipe for disaster. Uh, you know, I want my kids to have growth, I want them to grow up, but I want them to stop growing at some point. I want them to be mature and to reach a stage uh, where they get beyond growth. Uh, and there are some parts of the world whose economies do need to grow, where, where people need fresh water and, and access to nutritious food and education. But in the rich parts of the world, we already have plenty. We have plenty. Love may mean considering where our money is invested. As, a, as individuals, as a church, as a nation, and joining campaigns that, that seek to divest, to move our money from the main causes of the problem, like the fossil fuel companies. Uh, and if that's something you want to talk about further, I'm, I'm very keen to talk about that. Uh, that's, that's something I think is a, a really exciting opportunity at the moment of, of putting our money where our mouth is and saying, if it's wrong to be wrecking the climate, then it's wrong to be profiting from that wreckage. So let's move our money. Love today may mean paying close attention to the plight of the global poor and uh, understanding the ways that their existence is already being made more precarious by the ecological consequences of our lifestyles. Love today may mean keeping future generations in mind as we plan and as we play. Uh, I mean, we we have a government that doesn't look beyond the next election. Uh, We have business leaders who... Uh, are required by law to maximise the returns to their shareholders, which often means working on very short time frames of, of months or years. Uh, but but uh, as Christians, we, we have, to have a, a longer horizon than that, look further ahead, think about the consequences for our children and, and their children. And so love today will refuse to do harm to its neighbour. And that 
is an exciting path to walk. It's exciting to discover new ways of living. Exciting to face up to our reality, even if it's also scary and sad. And perhaps with Gerard Manley Hopkins, whose poem we're about to hear, perhaps love today needs to remove its shoes, metaphorically, to shrink its footprint and uh, walk barefoot in order to be able to feel the dirt beneath our feet once more. And so we're going to listen to a poem called The Grandeur of God. God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from, a shook, from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell, the soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights of the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with the warm breast and, ah, bright wings. <laughs> 